You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. You're listening to 1059 The Region. I'm station manager Tina Cortez, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues and events that matter to all of us who live and work here. On this weekend's show, former Lieutenant Governor David Onley shares details of his report about the barriers Ontarians with disabilities still face today. Also on the show, a preview of the High Notes Gala for Mental Health. But we begin with looking ahead to the arrival of spring. Finally, here's Afwaba. Spring officially arrives on March 20th, and uh, York Region and the rest of Ontario and Canada take a breather, take a sigh of relief. It looks like there might be a silver lining after that long, drawn-out winter. Now, to get all of the info as to what to expect for spring and taking a look back as to what we went through throughout this uh, past season, I have none other than Senior Climatologist with Environment Canada, Dave Phillips, here to give us all of the details. Dave, it's such a pleasure to speak with you. Well, thank you so much. Uh, like like to be a bore here and, uh, hey, talk about what we've had and maybe even what we're going to get. Although I have to warn you, we always do a better job describing what we've had than what we're going to get. <laughs> I agree with you there. And you know what? Um, I, it's, it's best to always talk to the expert. I know that we give a little bit too much attention to uh, the groundhogs in terms of what to expect. Uh-huh. So I think you're the perfect person to speak to in terms of, of what's happened. So let's start off with winter. What was the big yes. story? Was it the cold or was it the snow? You know, I, I mean, I think that it, it's hard to, to know what uh, what the big story is. Uh, I think when we go back and look on this winter, it won't be memorable. I mean, uh, you're right. We just come out of it. Um, I think people are saying enough's enough. Even people who are big fans of winter are saying, hey, uh, we're looking for something that the more layered down look and, uh, and less treachery, walking and driving and what have you. But, you know, I, I think when I look back over the winter, I, a couple of things come to mind. Uh, first of all, um, we, uh, we, we began kind of, uh, we almost didn't have a fall in a way. I mean, my favorite time of the year, uh, September was really warm, and then we got to October, November, and they, they seem more kind of winter-like. And, and certainly in New York region, we saw snow before Halloween. We saw a good dump of, um, of, of snow in, uh, in November, uh, perhaps maybe uh, twice as, more than twice as much as we normally would get. So I think people were thinking, uh-uh. This is going to be a tough winter. And then when we came through December, uh, it was actually quite balmy. We ended up with maybe only a fifth of the snow that we had. Didn't have a, a white Christmas. January came out to be the coldest of the months. And February had lots to it. I mean, there certainly was more snow, but temperatures kind of were close to, to normal. So when you look at the amount of snow we've had, and I have to warn you that, hey, we can't write the obituary on snow quite yet. I mean, we uh, we typically, after the 1st of March, say, we normally get in the York region about 27 centimeters of snow, or about 20%. I don't think we've had a, 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 an early spring that is from, uh, say, the 20th of, of March on, where we haven't had some snow. Now, although, you know, sometimes what comes one day is gone, gone the next. So we can't really add up all the numbers yet and tell what the snow is. So far, um, about 156 centimeters of snow, which is more than we had 
last year, and about 27% more than normal. So people in York Region were doing more shoveling, plowing, and pushing. Temperature-wise, we had signs of what I would describe as six cold days, so below minus 20. We normally get six cold days. Uh, so overall, I think temperatures were very close to, to normal. It's just the, the length of winter. And I think what was really missing, too, were those long bouts in January, February, where we had some melting temperatures, where temperatures rocketed up to uh, to double-digit uh, above 10 and went on for two or three days, melted all the snow, and then, hey, more snow came back. So I think we saw the snow out there on our uh, on our lawns and, and driveways a little too too long. So again, I, I don't think it was memorable, but I, I think it certainly seemed long without any of those kind of, of January heat waves that we sometimes uh, depend on. Okay, and uh, so then I will take your word on it then. Uh, it might not be as memorable. Can we maybe sort of touch up on memorable moments then? How about those those mixed storms that we would have here and there during the season uh, that would be mixed with uh, freezing rain, ice pellets, um, wind warnings that would be all tied in with a snowstorm? I mean, were those normal? Yeah, well, I, I think the, you, you raise a good point. I think the frequency of events, um, it wasn't, we got a couple of dumps of, uh, of snow, but I think overall it was almost like the, 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 the equivalent of the water torture test. It was the snow torture test or the, or the freezing rain. We seemed to go, we didn't have very many dry days. Uh, there seemed to be, there was less sunshine, uh, I think overall. And, uh, so I think there were moments like that, but it was, it tended to be one day, one Wonders. And, and that was it. We would get a, a snowstorm, an event, and then typically in the wintertime, you can count on the next 10 days being kind of dry and maybe coolish and sunny, but uh, no, no uh, white-knuckling it. But what we saw this year, it seemed to be we were just in the sort of the crosshairs of the Colorado Lows, Alberta Clippers coming in from the West or the United States, and it seemed to make a beeline to the Great Lakes. So I think there was a lot of active weather, but um, it's not something we keep track of and be able to say, well, gee, did we have more storms than normal? I think we felt there were more, and I think most people are right to say that. But um, but I think what we look at is usually the temperatures, precipitation, both rain and snow and freezing rain. And uh, I think overall, again, we've seen far worse in other winters. All right. Okay. So then now that uh, we are just about to transition into spring, we are just a few days away. What can we expect? Is it going to be uh, above average, normal or below normal? Is it going to be a quick changeover? Because we are seeing some uh, pretty uh, nice temperatures so far this week. Um, so is it going to be like that all the way through spring or is it going to be more of a gradual transition? Well, you know, the spring is a transition season, you know, and last year, I think it's probably noteworthy to talk a little bit about last spring. People still remember it. We went from slush to sweat. We went from April, one of the cruelest months ever. We had uh, five times the amount of snow, freezing rain. It was colder, one of the coldest Aprils on record. And then we went into May. It was turned out to be one of the warmest. I mean, my gosh, when I look at the uh, at temperatures uh, uh, last uh, last year, uh, during that uh, that swing, uh, you went from something like I think of the average temperature in April was maybe two or three degrees, and uh, and then May was uh, like sixteen degrees. Uh, 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 so that was really uh, an abrupt, almost 
black and white. I mean, we've never seen a more abrupt switch around. And typically what we, so I, I say last spring we had it, it lasted two minutes and you might have slept through it, you say. So <laughs> we went really from winter to almost uh, a beer drink and muscle shirt type of weather in, uh, in May. Now this year, I think it'll be more the kind of normal spring. I mean, we've already been teased uh, already last week. We had some, some warm temperatures. Uh, spring um, is about to arrive and, uh, and I think we might be disappointed. We might go back into some cooler air, some, some temperatures that just barely get above the freezing mark, but that's really the, the kind of back and forth that spring is about. I think we'll see maple syrup weather. You know, it gets up to four degrees uh, for a melting and then back down to minus four at night, that kind of back and forth and up and down yo-yo kind of weather. And I think really that's the best weather for us because, you know, in some areas in southern Ontario, we have a worry about the flood season and uh, the mud season. And uh, so you want to get rid of the look and the feel of winter gradually. Otherwise, you're going to deal with a lot of standing water, a lot of flood issues and that kind of thing. So I know psychologically we want to, uh, to, to for summer to arrive, but I think spring needs to be given its due course, and I think that's what we see. So every day now is going to get a little, of course, more sunnier, uh, higher sun higher in the sky, and a little bit more of a chance of warmth. So I think how March is going to play out in April, I don't put away the snow shovel quite yet. We still get snow in in uh, late March and April, and but I think we're going to see more of those days where the temperatures are close to maybe double digits, and then fall back to kind of cooler than normal, and then back up again, and eventually that seesawing kind of winter uh, loses out and spring grabs on. So I sense that this is going to be a normal spring. We're going to feel a spring and see a spring, whereas last year we it was missing in action. You know what? I can accept that then, because I think well, we've been spoiled a little bit, right, as you mentioned with last season. Exactly. I think you're right. I think if there's the best weather, I think is normal weather. So we've had a winter. Now we need spring to kind of uh, uh, bring on the the renewal and uh, get rid of the the look and the feel and bring on the the green grass and people will be able to put their skis away and think about their golf clubs and uh, and uh, and then we've got uh, our summer. I wanted to give you a little bit of good news here. Our oh, summer forecast do. is showing a a little a warmer than normal. Maybe not as excruciatingly warm as last year, but uh, it's not as if, um, you know, because we're going to have a spring, we're going to not have a summer. No, they don't work that way. So my sense is we're now entering the warm seasons, and uh, I think that this long winter will be soon forgotten as we get into the, the spring and the summer, and certainly in York Region, people enjoy the, the outdoors. There's lots to do, and uh, and we just don't have to think about winter for, for many, many months now. I'm fine with that. And honestly, as soon as you said summer, I almost jumped out of my seat. (laughs) (laughs) Patience, patience. Okay. Um, Now, for those who are um, avid planters or maybe trying to beginning to plant, it's probably not the best time. They need to wait a few more months, correct? Well, you're right. I mean, I think that what I always do, the strategy I do, go to the garden center, visit it, and uh, look at the stock that's in. Uh, it always comes much earlier, but you don't want to have to pay twice for your uh, your bedding plant. 
that's uh, uh, one. So you pick it up, get the right colors that you want, you bring it home, and all of a sudden you get hit by a, a killing frost. I mean, that's not nice, and, and you have to go back and, and, and do it all over again. So my sense is uh, think about it, maybe do some planting seeds indoors uh, uh, and, um, and get them going, and uh, maybe start working, rake the lawn, work the, the soil, but uh, because there's a pretty pretty good frost line there, and so I think just be patient, get through the flood season, the mud season, and wow, I would say that uh, probably sometime in early May, uh, uh, don't do it in April, May is a good time, and, uh, and there's still lots of stock at the garden centers to satisfy your needs. Perfect, and then final question before I let you go, um, even though I love talking weather with you, honestly. Um, <laughs> I have heard from a, a number of people in terms of when they're talking about the weather that they find that there's not necessarily four s- distinct seasons happening anymore in Canada as they would remember it back in the good old days, if you will. Um, they find that there's almost like a, a meld of like a, a spring fall or a winter summer and it's not sort of uh, winter throughout. Is that necessarily the case or is it uh, maybe just one of those anomalies that happen from season to season? Well, I think maybe last year was a sort of something I've never seen in my 50 years as a, as a weather guy. Um, is the fact that we had winter and summer. We didn't have a, a, a spring and fall. I've never seen that before. Sometimes you can have a short season. The, 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 the spring and the fall are normally the sm- shortest seasons, but the, always the problem is how you define that season. I always think it's easy to define winter. It's when the snow comes and you, the, the, the cold. And, and summer, well, we kind of know what that is, especially if we look at water temperatures. It's really the spring and fall are hard to sort of define. And you're right, one sort of blends into the other, winter into spring, and then into late spring into summer, and then, of course, the fall seasons, my, my favorite time of the year where the color change, but always seems to be only, uh, if you're lucky, six weeks as opposed to uh, two, three months. I, I think we don't know enough about the length of the seasons to be able to to comment that. You know, sometimes, my gosh, people have claimed uh, claim that we've had four seasons in one day, and and they're wearing out their bodies changing clothes. But I think what really the the spice of of life here in southern Ontario and York Region is, if you don't like the weather out your front door, look out your back door. It does change, and I think change of weather is what makes this area uh, kind of fortunate, unique. We're we're never dull. We're never bored uh, talking about the weather because we always seem to have some kind of weather uh, happening. It's never uh, tomorrow's never like yesterday or or the day before. It's there's always something changing on the mind, and that's why I think people talk about the weather so much in 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 this part of of Canada because it it does change so so quickly. And but that's just the very nature of our climate. I don't think there's anything really revealing to say whether that those seasons have got shorter. I I think in the future, uh, you're right. I mean, there's supposed to be winter is supposed to be shorter and summers are longer and the transition seasons would be maybe earlier and later. I think that's, but that's something that might not happen for, for several decades yet. Okay, Dave Phillips, it's always a pleasure. You always give us what we need to know and not necessarily what we want to know. <laughs> that's always the best though. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Always a delight talking with you. And let's let's maybe do the same thing as we approach summer. Our official forecast comes out the first of June, and I I, I maintain we'll probably have some some good news. Although you know, there's still lots of time to change our mind, and we're not always right. But we'll we'll visit that as we get closer to the uh, uh, to the first of June. I'm sure. Sounds good. We'll be patient, and we'll be looking forward to it.
great. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region with spring just around the corner. Cleaning and clearing the clutter may be on your to-do list. Christy Laverty is next with How to Get Started. So today we are joined by Claire Kumar. She is a productivity catalyst. So why don't you start off by telling us what that is for somebody who maybe doesn't know. Well, thanks. I uh, I help people be more productive, and I do that through speaking and coaching. So um, I, I catalyze or inspire people to be looking at ways to have more fun while getting things done. Right, and so it's it's really all about productivity, being efficient, and being organized. Yes, being organized is a really big part of being productive. So one of the things that we've seen a lot, um, particularly on social media and, you know, with a Netflix special, uh, Marie, it's, it's Marie Kondo, correct? You Marie correct. Kondo. Marie Kondo. Mm-hmm. So she became, for anyone who's listening and maybe doesn't know, uh, she became really well known for a book. And now there's a Netflix special, um, a series. And really, it's a technique and a strategy, a whole system of getting organized and decluttering. It works for some people. I'm not sure. I'm not quite there yet myself. Um, but there's been this really big trend again on, you know, getting organized and decluttering and it can be really overwhelming to even just start thinking about it. So what kind of tips do you have for people who, you know, see this, you know, conversation online and everybody's sort of jumping on this bandwagon and, you know, they're struggling to figure out how to even just get started. Yeah. Well, I have to celebrate Maria Kondo's, um, efforts because, number one, I think she's um, done a really soft sell by calling it tidying up. <laughs> uh, it is a life-changing magic of um, organizing and decluttering. Um, so she does expand on that in the book for sure. Uh, but I think calling it tidying up is, is, it makes it sound a little lighter than it is. It, you know, our houses and calendars don't get so full all on their own all in, in, you know, in a few minutes. This builds up over years. And so it's not necessarily a quick fix to to restore order and cultivate an environment in which you can thrive but i'll tell you what i love it is a decision and we can all make the decision and then we can adopt a path that works for us to really bring us to where we want to be yeah because we i think you know everyone has sort of gotten on that whole consumerism thing and you particularly if you're a family and you have children you tend to accumulate a lot of stuff that then becomes the clutter of our lives. And, you know, it's sure easy to bring things into your household. It's often another whole game plan to take things out because you've got attachments and somehow you're, you're connected to things and give things meaning and place in your life. Um, so maybe talk to us about how people can just start to move some of the stuff that maybe they're not using that's really cluttering their lives and how to get over that feeling of overwhelm and just like begin. Oh, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to start, though, though, just by touching on the consumerism point that you make and just to, to plant a thought that might help people not create such a challenge going forward. So every time you buy something, I want you to think of not only the place you're going to keep it, but I want you to also think of what happens 
when I no longer need this? And what is the situation that hap- that will mean that I no longer need this? So we're already thinking more fully about the life cycle or engagement with something, not that we're bringing it in and it's got to stay there forever and we're not actually giving attention to that. So um, I'd just like to plant that seed. And, uh, yeah, then we can talk about, um, you know, how to deal with this overwhelm and um, the challenge of, of getting to it. I think, well, part of the consumerism piece as well is is that we love novel things. Our brain is drawn to novelty, so it's easy to be excited about uh, bringing things in. But what if we could get our minds around creating an environment and a schedule that really supports us? and create some novelty and energy around creating that, then we can bring our energy, drive, and attention to moving things forward and and out, perhaps sharing them with others, donating them, selling them. Uh, We need to think about the ways that we can move things out of our homes and on in their life cycle. And really, I think one of the interesting things that I picked up on there is, is this idea of making sure that things have a place. Right? Like if you don't have a place for it, then what? Well, then, uh, then it's sort of a natural evolution towards chaos. And it's really um, kind of interesting because there's personal preferences to the way we like to interact with things in our space, and there's a, a real continuum of people who really like something minimalist and spare and others who really feel more comfortable in a very full, visually busy environment. And I'm not going to say there's a right and wrong, but I'll tell you that anybody for whom the environment has become more busy than they like, there's a real, um, number one, stress that they're experiencing and a real drive and appreciation of getting to order, but not everybody knows innately how to get there. In fact, my my roommate in first-year university was a brilliant, brilliant, um, intelligent woman, electrical engineer did not understand the concept, had never never really um, caught on to the idea of putting something back where it came from. So it's not a sign of smarts. It's it's just, you know, how you how you the environment you've grown up with and and uh, what you've adopted along the way to make things work for you. So no shame in this. It's um it's one of those concepts though to th- start thinking about and creating spaces for the things that you want to keep and time in your calendar for the things that you want to do. And I think, too, we with this idea of, you know, the tidying up and this strategy, for some people, you know, the the going at it all at once is a good thing. They feel like they're accomplishing that let's just, you know, get everything out and, you know, get rid of the stuff that doesn't bring us joy because um, that's part of the whole uh, concept um, of tidying up from Rincondo. But uh-huh. for some, that's really overwhelming. Uh, for most. I would say it's really <laughs> overwhelming. And, I mean, I've worked with people for over 15 years in their homes and offices helping them through this process. And, yeah, I believe that you should have things that are, you know, to quote William Morris, either are beautiful or useful in your homes, right? And so that that concept of, Sparking Joy is, is a bit simple because that's the the, the, the second book title. Um, but it's really around having positive energy for those things that you choose to have around you. And so that concept gets simplified a little bit if we just say, does this spark joy or not? And and it also poses challenges for those of us who are creative and, and everything sparks joy, but we don't have room for it. So 
I often talk about respecting capacity. And we have to not only respect our space, but we have to respect the energy that we have to bring to something and the time that we can devote. So when I'm working with a client, we will look quite holistically about how does this fit in their already busy life, and then we'll construct it. So either you know, they're doing it over a period of time where they can devote to it, or we'll bring a team of people in to help so that... Some of the sorting, for example, can be offloaded and it doesn't have to take so much of that one person's physical and emotional energy. And so that's an interesting point because, you know, for a lot of people, if you're feeling the overwhelm and then just say, oh, I, I, I just can't do it and then they leave it. But there are people like you that they can turn to for help. So how does that process work? Like how would somebody say, you know, I'm feeling really stuck. Claire, help me. Well, there's a wonderful association uh, which is all across the country called Professional Organizers in Canada. And I would suggest um, people reach out through that association to find an organizer in their area. Uh, and then you want to have a conversation. You want to make sure that the organizer you choose to work with listens incredibly well to you. Um, my analogy has always been, and it's not every organizer out there, so I want you to, to hire carefully. My analogy has always been the client is telling me where they want to go, and I'm the hand at their back, and we're going there together, and I'm going to help them get to where they want to go. Uh, a lot of television shows across over the years um, have pressured people to let go of things and embarrassed, you know, embarrassed people for the choices that they made. And, and mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not a big fan of that. I don't, I don't uh, have a vote in what you keep, but I would be somebody there to gently remind you of the priorities that you set. And in fact, I have an organizing process that starts with clarifying priorities so that we, we all know and can keep top of mind where we're aiming. And that proves really useful. And just to wrap up, if people want to connect with you and find out more about you and what you do, where can they find that information? Oh, thank you. You can find me at clairekumar.com. Claire is C-L-A-R-E. There's no I. And Kumar is like Harold and Kumar, K-U-M-A-R.com. <laughs> Thank you so much. I feel like I need to go home and start organizing now. <laughs> well, have fun with it, whatever you do. Don't make it uh, something you don't look forward to. It really is a wonderful foundation for personal and professional success. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Claire. My pleasure. You're listening to 105.9 The Region, and this is The Feed. We are honored to be joined by former Lieutenant Governor David Onley next. David, thank you for sharing your time with us. Thank you. A real pleasure. Well, you know, you have many areas of expertise and experience. You were asked to review the implementation of Ontario's Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act. Can you tell us about your findings? Um, certainly. It was a, a year-long process. Um, that was complicated somewhat by the reality of a provincial election uh, last year uh, and then, of course, the change of government. And so that delayed a few things as we had to see what the results of the election were going to be, um, see who the minister was going to be, and get a sense of what, to, what they were interested in doing because the actual appointment it was made by the, uh, the previous government, the Wynn government. So um, 
I wasn't concerned that I was going to be replaced, but I wanted to see, you know, what their interests were. were um, I was convinced that everything would be fine, and it was, but it just took uh, an extra month to six weeks to get the process underway. And uh, so once that was clarified, uh, once we met with the new minister, Raymond Cho, um, then it began the process of touring the province and going to different communities and um, getting people to come out to public hearings. And, and by the time it was all wrapped up by the uh, late last year, um, we had uh, had over 300 people attend our hearings from uh, as far away as Thunder Bay, uh, we went to Ottawa, we went to London, we held hearings here in Toronto, in Oshawa. And um, as opposed to reaching out to one of the, or many of the couple hundred disability-related organizations in the province, um, we really, uh, we reached out to them to a certain extent, but we really reached out primarily to uh, parents and family members of persons with disabilities, and of course, persons with disabilities themselves. Um, and uh, I was very gratified that um, by the time all was said and done, as I say, we had over 300 uh, individuals uh, come forward. Uh, and that does not include uh, representatives of the different organizations, whether it was the Ontario March of Dimes or, um, you know, any of the other organizations. Now, you're a wheelchair user yourself. Can you tell us a little bit specifically about the findings? Sure. Um, I'll just make one minor correction. Although I do use a wheelchair at home when I'm, no, when I'm not wearing my braces, uh, when I'm out and about, uh, as I was during my days at City TV, as you know, um, I use an electric scooter and um, because I do have the capacity to go short distances um, uh, walking, but I have to be uh, extremely cautious. And certainly in the winter, it, uh, it definitely uh, makes things all that more complicated. Yes, and thank you for clarifying. And full disclosure, David and I go back a, a long way, and we have fond memories, I hope, of our yes, City yes, TV yes, and yes. CP24 days. Um, yes, we do. Absolutely. I'm sorry for interrupting. Go ahead. No, no, not at all. Thank you for that, uh, adding that point in. And uh, a lot of good memories, and the ones that aren't so good, well, we've shoved them aside because <laughs> on the coast, doesn't it? Um, but, you know, it was interesting because, and I'll relate it back to the days at City TV, because when I began doing the weather back in uh, late 1984, hard to believe, um, I, was, I, I was nervous about the perception of being seen as a person with a disability on TV. That initially bothered me, and it was one of the things that changed very quickly when I noticed being out and about shopping and that sort of thing, uh, different persons with disabilities coming up to me and saying hello, and I realized for the first time that I was having an impact by, just by virtue of being on screen, uh, by being in individuals' homes and uh, um, and of course, as you know, but it's so many years ago now, decades ago, it's, uh, it hardly seems possible, but uh, by virtue of that positioning, I became the first person with a physical disability to be in an on-air television newscast uh, in Canada. And then as time went on, I started not just doing the weather, but um, as you'll recall, I started doing stories 
that were related to disability. And uh, I think one of the very first ones I ever did, ironically, uh, was the Lieutenant Governor's Games at Variety Village. And, um, and a couple of ironies there because I was a big supporter of Variety Village and uh, met and, and interviewed the Lieutenant Governor of the day, John Black Aird, and uh, having absolutely no perception whatsoever. That one day. That, that one day, <laughs> that's right, that I would be at Variety Village being interviewed by somebody from City TV um, as in my capacity as Lieutenant Governor. So life is strange. And how has it changed then with for Ontarians with disabilities since those days in the 80s? In some ways, things have gotten a lot better. In some ways, things have not changed a great deal. The way they've gotten better is that um, back in the day in the, in the 80s, uh, very few places were accessible, very, very few. Um, and there was not a big push for it. There, it was just um, disability groups who were agitating, but there was no groundswell of support for that. There just wasn't. Um, and so that was, that was then. Um, I remember that the TTC came out with a report in 1986 about... Uh, putting uh, elevators in all of the subway stations uh, and having it done by the year 2001, which at the time seemed so far off. And they did not embrace the idea. Uh, they definitely installed them in some locations, but they just didn't see the, per- the, the need to do it. Uh, there was no connection there saying, well, you know, it's not just people who use scooters and wheelchairs uh, and walkers were just brand new at that point. Uh, they just didn't see that it also included um, uh, moms with uh, buggies pushing their kids around uh, and older people who just had great difficulty either A, using stairs or B, using uh, escalators. So um, times changed as, uh, and it was because of advocacy advocacy groups who were just kept pushing and pushing the pushed the TTC and so far as Wheeltrans was concerned and certainly we at City had a huge role to play in the changes there uh, as I was sent out uh, one particular stretch of time and I believe we ended up doing 14 consecutive stories uh, for the news at 6 about um, negativities in, uh, of the Wheeltrans system. It just Unbelievable stories that people were just not being served uh, well at all. And things changed quite quickly after that. So, you know, it's, a, it's like any other change in society. It takes, um, a, it's not just one thing that gets it done. It's uh, a variety of things. And, and so uh, along the way, uh, as I was doing these stories, then I started becoming, uh, I was being asked to give speeches at different, to different groups about accessibility. And initially, I didn't know what to say. Uh, and the people, uh, the organizers of the different events would just say, well, just tell us your story. Tell us how you got to where you are. And uh, so that became part of my process. And in, in that process, then I became uh, a really overt advocate for accessibility. And so when the act was finally passed in 2005, uh, I was appointed first chair of the Minister's Accessibility Standards Advisory uh, Committee, 
And so we were advising the, the minister of the day, uh, Sandra Pupatello, uh, in terms of the implementation of the act. And that lasted uh, two years. And I, I know that it was that appointment to that committee that made it possible for me to be considered uh, for the role of lieutenant governor because I've never done anything on a national, uh, uh, excuse me, a provincial basis. I, my focus, of course, and uh, everything I was doing was in the Toronto and greater Toronto area. So, you know, you, you don't plan these things when you start your career as weatherman. <laughs> you just, you take them one step at a time. And you've worked hard for every step along the way. And I have to say, what do you say to then, you know, people out there, David, who say that, you know what, it's so much different now in 2019, that most places yeah. are accessible. You see those disability signs everywhere. Is that the reality? No, unfortunately, it's not. Although you make an absolutely uh, brilliant point, and I uh, included it in the review, actually, that it's the disability signs, the wheelchair parking signs that are everywhere that give the impression that things are accessible. But um, uh, we recounted in the review various stories from people, and I've seen this example again and again and again, where, yeah, there's a wheelchair parking spot that's available, but that does not mean for a moment that the facility itself is. And, um, and, and so that's the great, uh, it's a misperception. And it, it's the, both the blessing and the curse of the wheelchair symbol sign. Um, that uh, the officially known as the international symbol of access, as I reach back into my memory bank from mm. my lecture notes. Um, but uh, uh, it gives us the impression that things uh, are accessible when they're not. So what happens to the report from here? Well, it's um, been tabled uh, in the legislature uh, that last week, that at the end of the last week, that was the first step. And it's been reviewed by the cabinet and the minister, uh, Raymond Show, he and his staff are going over it and they'll make their decisions on how many of the recommendations that I put forward should be implemented. And, uh, so hopefully that happens and happens quickly. And, uh, hopefully the recommendations are ones that, uh, which do reflect the views that we heard from hundreds of people. Um, we hope that that will have a, a very positive impact and uh, improve the situation dramatically. So we shall see. We've been speaking with former Lieutenant Governor David Onley. Thank you for sharing your time and your work with us, and all the best to you, your amazing wife, Ruth Ann, and your beautiful family. Thank you. Thanks, Tina. Always a pleasure. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region, where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region, including a stop at Blue Door Shelters. Jim Lang takes us inside. Well, for people in York Region, they are very familiar with the place and I guess uh, the location called Blue Door Shelters. We've heard a lot about it through 360 Kids, and they do great work in the community. It's a, it's a longstanding nonprofit organization helping a lot of people in York Region. And thrilled to be speaking with a familiar voice about to be starting as their new CEO of Blue Door Shelters, Michael Braithwaite. Michael, how are you? I'm good, Jim. I'm good. Thank you very much. Uh, this, back. Well, it's it's great to have you back. You had a long run at 360 Kids. Then you were at Raising the Roof. Um, what pulled you back to the region to take over Blue Door Shelters? 
Well, you know, I, I have a lot of love for York Region. I think there's a lot of great people doing great things there. Um, and while Raising the Roof was national and we were looking at different strategies to prevent and end homelessness, I love the grassroots feeling of, of really helping people and, and making change happen, seeing it happen in front of you. Now, Blue Door Shelters, for people maybe who are not aware, it provides safe and supportive emergency housing and housing services for people who are homeless or at risk or becoming homeless. How is that different than what you did at 360 Kids? Is it encompassing more of a different range of ages? Yeah, yeah. although Blue Door does have a small youth component, a lot of our focus is around family and adult homelessness, uh, specifically men who quite often are, are forgotten or there's not as much empathy for men, but they represent the largest number of uh, individuals that uh, are experiencing homelessness across Canada. So it's it's a nonprofit organization. Um, how does a place like Blue Door Shelters get the funds needed, desperately needed, to function? Well, we're very, very fortunate. Um, we're fortunate to be in a region with a regional government that really, truly understands this and has made a huge investment into uh, Blue Door, as well as our, our good friends at the United Way, who, who understand that, that housing and homelessness is uh, the key to reducing any poverty. And they're, they're very great supporters as well. The community is always amazing in responding and, and helping out. You were at the YMCA to start your really work career out of school for a long time before you made the transition to these kind of organizations. What, what drew you to helping people and helping homelessness, Michael? Well, I'll tell you, I was with the Y a long time, and a lot of that was youth work with uh, youth at risk, who we, we'd go and provide recreation programs to. But it was my last stop in uh, Hamilton. Hamilton had a men's residence with 174 men who were living there. It was the cheapest independent living in Hamilton, never meant to be long-term residents, but because of uh, the amount of cost to live there or the affordability, there was a lot of guys there. But what happened is, that uh, came without service. So he had 174 men with addictions, with mental health issues, uh, lonely and need without services because it was just straight accommodations. My eyes were open to what happens when you, uh, it's not just about housing, but it's about supportive and the right type of housing, having the right supports as well as affordability. And that kind of drove me to, to think what would happen if we worked a little more upstream and provided these, these services before people uh, fall into this type of uh, housing and homelessness. Speaking with Michael Braithwaite, the new CEO of Blue Door Shelters, you can get more information on how to volunteer time or money at bluedoorshelters.ca. And you just alluded to mental health, Michael, and I, and I know our kids are in high school, and there's a lot of uh, support groups in high schools or in a lot of HR units in workplaces for people with mental health. But on a whole, how much further do we have to go to help the members of society who struggle with mental health? Well, I think there's a couple of different things here. You mentioned working back into schools and the work that schools do. We know that the further upstream you work around prevention and around making sure kids have um, the, the sports they need before their mental health spirals, right? So if you can get ahead of the game and make sure the sports are in place, um, we'll reduce not only the number of people that need mental health services long-term, but also things like homelessness, job loss, family breakdown, et cetera. Uh, now, for, for the adults that are out there, I mean, I remember talking with uh, Eric Shelley and saying that um, having an emergency kind of hospital that would just serve uh, people with mental health challenges would be amazing because right now going into the, the system as it is, it, it really is taking too much time, too much police time, um, and it's not, it's just not 
quick enough and it's not efficient enough to help people in need. So we just, it's a systems approach to changing that and, and serving those with mental health needs quicker. Are we, are we any closer to having a, a mental health specific healthcare facility? Well, I, I think Rebecca Shields, a good friend of mine at Canadian Mental Health Association, is doing groundbreaking work. She's done things where she has that uh, the RV that goes out to people, brings the brings the, the services to people in the community. She, she's brilliant, and I think with with leaders like her in the community, uh, yeah, we've taken some huge steps, and there's bigger ones to take yet. How do we get the word out to people beside this interview, Michael, that what Blue Door Shelters not only is, but provides for people in the region and how they can maybe support it? Uh, you know, I think really it's, uh, you know, it's people like myself going out and talking and looking at, sometimes we have to look at uh, non-traditional partnerships as well, uh, working with different groups where you wouldn't think homelessness would be a factor. Um, when I was with 360 Kids are raising the roof. We worked a lot with the Toronto Region Conservation Authority, and you think, well, what do they have to do with housing or homelessness? And um, but they have 168 houses that they rent out. They have different properties that are vacant that they can use for housing uh, and support. And really, it comes out of conversations uh, like that, where, where you know we, we can build the services or different things or innovative approaches to preventing and ending homelessness. So it, it really is just having multiple conversations. Um, because most people's understanding, Jim, is really downtown Toronto, guy in the corner, sleeping bag, uh, cup in hand, and that really represents a small percentage of uh, homelessness. And York Region is even less visual, so it really is about having the conversation and educating and engaging people as to what homelessness really looks like. And now people out there shopping this weekend, uh, running their errands, if you can, I know Blue Door Shelters on their website say they need donations of diapers size 4, 5, and 6, full-size shampoo, toothbrushes, toothpaste, men's underwear, men's running shoes, uh, things of that nature. So if you have some extra room in your cart while you're shopping, throw some in there and get a hold of the people at bluedoorshelters.ca. I know they would greatly appreciate it. I, I, I can remember in some of the 360 experiences, Michael, one of the challenges for the scenarios was even getting there, especially at night because it's on Highway 11 slash Young Street, a couple kilometers north of Green Lane, and that can be tough using transit, can it not? Uh, absolutely. I mean, 30 years ago, you know, when, when this shelter was put there, it's because that was the land available and that's where people went accepted. The, the nimbyism played in, right? And, and fortunately, we think a lot of things have changed. And I think going forward, you'll see the region has great plans, Blue Door has great plans, and our partners to really bring services a little closer because that does uh, put a barrier in place. I know the staff team at Blue Door, who's incredible, does a great job at bridging that gap and going to sending transfers to pick people up, cabs, whatever. Uh, client safety and accessibility is our number one priority, and, and we do our best to uh, to bridge that, that uh, challenge. I'm a little biased, Michael, because I'm a big fan of you and what the work you do for homelessness in the region and the GTA, and I'm awfully thrilled to know that you're the new CEO of Blue Door Shelters. I have no doubt you're going to do some great work there, and it's going to be a, a great help to everyone in the community. Congratulations. Thank you very much, Jim. Uh, yourself and the station have always been uh, huge supporters of 360 Kids, of Blue Door, of all kind of community um, uh, efforts to prevent and end homelessness. And we're so thankful for that because awareness is so key in, in just preventing and ending homelessness across the region. It's the least we can do. Congratulations, Michael. Thank you for this, my friend. Thank you, Jim.
This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez. If you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com for a replay. Our last stop takes us to the High Notes Gala for Mental Health because everyone has a story. Well, coming up on Thursday, April the 4th at the Richmond Health Center for the Performing Arts in the Plaza Suite, something very special. The High Notes from Avante Productions, High Notes Gala for Mental Health Awareness. Um, it's really cool. Luba Goy, Dan Hill. It's an amazing, empowering event that happens in York Region, and we're lucky to be part of it. And I'm lucky to be speaking to someone who is of the glue that holds the whole thing together, Ingrid Tahari. Ingrid, how are you? I'm just wonderful. I'm busy, but I'm doing great. Thank you. Um, Looking forward to this event coming up, yeah. As well you should. It's a it's a great event, and it helps a lot of people in the region. Um, I'm sure every year you must do something and hear something and feel something that makes it even more special, makes you want to do it again the year, the next year. Uh, sure. Actually, every, every year I tell myself that this is the last one, but then the feedback does come in, and you hear some nice stories about people that... Really was touched by the stories that they heard and how it affected them and how they felt less lonely. So every year, although I told myself this is the last one, we start planning the next one. Well, if you if you want tickets to the great event, um, Luba Goy is a is a legend of Canadian comedy and television and radio. She was a the basically one of the stars of the Air Force and of course Dan Hill. No descriptions necessary. A Grammy Award singer songwriter. Uh, you can go and get tickets right now at rhcpa.ca for the Richmond Hill Center for the Performing Arts. It's rhcpa.ca to get tickets to this. And, and, and it's so important, not just because Luba Goy and Dan Hill are there, Ingrid, but because it really is important to raise this stigma about mental health. Right. And, and to talk about it and to normalize it and make it um, acceptable to get advice from the people around us. So this is what it's really about. Uh, we, are, we also have a cellist and author. Her name is Erika Nielsen. She's also going to be sharing her story about living with bipolar disorder. Uh, and, you know, we hope that the audience members, when they hear Luba's and the Dan's and Erika's stories, that they will recognize that uh, mental illness doesn't stop you. Life goes on, and let's support each other. Let's show compassion and respect to uh, everyone who lives with this. Here, here, uh, please. I'm uh, everyone listening. Ingrid is is a great person, but it, it, all that work she's done the last year wouldn't mean much if people to go out and get the tickets. So check it out: rhcpa.ca or rhcenter.ca. Just go to the Richmond Hall Center for Performing Arts. Go to their website. Get the tickets. If you want to phone them, it's nine zero five. 787-8811, and that's Thursday, April the 4th at 7.30 p.m. It's a it's a wonderful night in the region, but more importantly, it's an important night to help us battle the stigma of mental health. Uh, Ingrid, thank you so much for your efforts in putting this together another year and uh, making this uh, possible for the people in the region. You're doing great work. Thank you so much, and thank you so much to the region for uh, 105.9 for supporting us. It's our pleasure, Ingrid. Take care. You too. Thank you. That's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed, head over to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Tina Cortez. Thanks for listening.